0: Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's episode is the third edition of the theme, Wet Feet, stories on, in, and under the sea. Tonight's event was performed live at Beak Restaurant in Sitka on September 19th, 2019, and your host this evening is Ellen Frankenstein.
1: Are you here to hear Sitka Tells Tales? Cool. Yes. So this event is brought to you by uh, the Seafood Festival and Art Change. How many people have not been to a live storytelling event before? Ooh. How many people have been to Sick of Tales Tales before? Yay. Okay, so live storytelling events. They're done all over the country. The way we do it is we give people six minutes to tell a story to the theme. And the theme is, does anyone know what the theme is? Yep, stories in, on, and under the sea. I want to thank The Beak. I want to thank Our Timer. We have a photographer, Raven Radio, All Our Press, and The Brave Tellers. We're also going to have a little music. So we're going to start with Ted, who's going to actually do two songs for us. Ted Howard, born in Iowa. Raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan, over 30 years a Sitkin, he likes it when it rains. The first song for the night, which I relate to because I was a liveaboard once, was That's Alright, Love Reigns Supreme on a Liveaboard.
2: Well, hello. This song started out with a little riff from G7 to G7 Sus. And I thought, that's kind of cool. But it needs something else, so I put in a little funky thing. And then I started thinking about uh, how many ways somebody could mess up a relationship and still remain in it. Okay, so this is about that process. You burned up my galley, wrecked my brand new car. Even Ellen tells me this time you've gone too far, but that's all right. That's all right. Baby, that's all right. That's all right That's all right. You give me all your love and oh, baby, that's all right. I gave you some money so you could pay the rent. Harbor master's at the door. You say it's all spent, but that's all right. That's all right. Oh, baby, that's all right. oh all right you give me all your love and oh baby that's all right and i gave you my mastercard should have given cash got my bill in the mail my credit rating's trash that's all right oh that's all right oh baby that's all right all right you give me all your love and more baby, that's all right. burn the toast but babe it's not your cooking that I love the most that's all right oh that's all right oh baby that's all right that's all right oh you give me all your love and oh baby that's all right everybody sing baby that's all right that's all right that's all right Oh, all right. Baby, that's all right. right. Oh, all right. right. Baby, that's all right. Oh, all right. Baby, that's all right. Oh, you give me all your love. And oh, baby, that's all right. (noise) Thank you. So I get to introduce, I have the great honor of introducing Lakota Harden, a Lakota woman from the Black Hills of South Dakota by way of San Francisco Bay Area, a four-year resident of Sitka. She returned here from having lived here as a child, graduating from Sitka High in 1975. Um, She's a grandmother of 12. And her spent her life working with young people. Her story is Minnie Uh Water is life.
3: If anybody knows about Standing Rock, you know what Minnie Wachoni is, right? Anybody in here know what Minnie Wakonye is? Okay, water is life. Um, So I was living in the Bay Area, I loved it. Once you go there and move there, it's hard to leave because you get spoiled by everything available. Um, But uh, has always been in my home and when I'd be sitting on the Bay Bridge in traffic for four hours, I'd close my eyes and this is where I'd picture. So I decided to move back and I've been here almost four years. And I am here because Ellen is here um, she asks me every time. I was one of the first storytellers a while ago, probably four years ago. And um, water is a part of who I am. I've never n- not been able to live near the water, so what kind of Plains Indian am I, right? <laughs> Someone said, why don't you move home? And, I said, and my daughter says, because she likes the cold rain. You know, that's, all our lives it took her to the beach. Um, and part of it is because I know, and it's funny, I went to Bioneers, does anyone know what Bioneers is? Where yeah. they come and they talk about all these things and they, this guy, the scientist was like, we found out that water is alive and water is healing. And I'm like, we've known this for centuries. <laughs> and the people who fight for water are those who've been healed by it and we're like, duh. Anyway, <laughs> for me as a child, I went to visit, I met my father for the first time when I was about 16. I lived here in Sitka, and I flew down there, and I was always, I'm a true Gemini. I lived in two different, opposite worlds. So I'd be protesting on top of Mount Rushmore, being arrested, dragged down, and then I'd come and march in the Alaska Day Parade in red, white, and blue. <laughs> I thought everybody had two completely opposite lives. But, um, so I went to visit my father, and on the res, everybody's embarrassed. And at that age, when you're a teenager, everybody's embarrassed. You're. Eternally embarrassed, right? And so nobody wants to wear swimming suits. And I was doing, you know, wherever you go, you do what they do, right? Especially when you're 15. And I put on jeans and a shirt like this to go swimming (laughs) because everyone else did, right? You didn't want to show any part of your skin. And so I was swimming, and I had a younger sister, and we were in this beautiful lake, and there was Still rocks, they were, it was a man-made lake, so everything was very nicely designed, right? For to swim and to lounge and swim and lounge. And um, she jumped, she couldn't swim, she was younger. She jumped on me, and they had it underneath the water where you can walk and play and stuff, and then there's a drop-off, right? Well, I, she was on me, and I hit the drop-off, and I went down, and she started to panic because she couldn't swim, so she started climbing on top of my head and was screaming. And I remember sort of seeing through the water for a second, I was drowning. I looked and I saw my daddy had this crazy hat on and he looked and he saw her drowning. (laughs) So he dove in, ran, dove in, grabbed her and took her. And you know, I'm getting kicked and all this stuff is happening. And the last thing I remember was seeing his legs. And I was, that's the last thing I saw. And all of a sudden I looked around and I was on one of those lounging rocks. Nobody was around me and everybody was over there panicked because she almost drowned, right? And I sat there and I thought, who saved me? What happened? And I knew it was the water that saved me, I knew it. And when you're 15, that's profound, right? So another time, I'm older, I have younger kids and I'm um, river rafting down the American River in in, um, in California. And we are novices, right? <laughs> but we did pray. We got on the water and we offered a prayer and asked for permi- permission to be with the water and for protection. And the, the, spir- the guides, the river raft guides said, no one's ever done that before. It's kind of weird, right? <laughs> and so we were going down it was all these native people all this our youth program right to enjoy nature and we got to the we were rafting and they didn't didn't realize it gets really wild right and there's all these cliffs and things and we're like ah you know lounge chair position remember lounge chair position if you fall in right and at one point we everyone started having trouble and we got to this point And I looked down, and in that moment, I knew we were going to flip. We were stuck, has anyone done that? And you flipped, you know it's coming, so you're like, you know, hold your breath, lounge chair position. And I got to, to that point, and I just closed my eyes, and I thought, okay, we're going. And I literally felt, it wasn't a rogue wave, it wasn't, but I felt the river lift us off. And everybody in in our raft were stunned because, you know, physics, all of that, we should have went over. And we were gently lifted off and floated down. And we all were stunned. We couldn't say anything because we knew, we knew, we felt it, everyone in the boat. So I know water is alive. I know it has a spirit. I know it watches out for us. Every time you turn on that faucet, every time you turn on that shower, Every time you flush, (laughs) say thank you to the water. We are so grateful the water came back this last couple days. We need it desperately. So we got to always remember to say thank you. And that's it for me. And I just want to say, I just want everyone to realize that this woman, Ellen, Frankenstein, has been doing storytelling herself for decades. I met her about 30 years ago or so in, in California, and she was doing a story, and I heard Clinkett songs in this bedroom of a friend of mine's, and I'm like, what's going on? And uh, we met, and we've been friends ever since, and she puts a lot of work into this she, to make this happen for all of us. So I just want to acknowledge Ellen. I love you. Okay, so Michael, Michael, where are you, dude? Awesome. Michael was born in Western Washington. He was raised here in Sitka, so we all kind of know who Michael is, right? He's lived most of his life near the water. While that makes his current life in hot and dry central LA a little difficult. He manages to get back here to colder waters as much as he can. Most days you can find him on board an Allen Marine vessel telling the same four Sitka stories to a boat full of tourists. (laughs) And I love this story. Title of his story is, St. Eugene, How I Saved America's Youthful Spirit.
4: Thank you.
1: Michael's taller than when I first worked with him in eighth grade. It was the, you know.
5: I went from about probably 5 foot 10 to 6 foot 1, 6 foot 2. It fluctuates depending on the shoes I wear. Anyway, so this is the story of St. Eugene, uh, Saving America's Youth. I gave it that title kind of late at night when I probably should have been in bed, so it sounds a lot more grandiose than I imagine the story's going to appear, but here we go. So as I said in my bio, I work for Allen Marine Tours and early on in the season we were coming into Jamestown where we put the boats for the night when we're not doing tours and I catch out of the corner of my eye from the wheelhouse something kind of goes spiraling into the water. And so my captain and I both clock it and we kind of look over at it and we we see it's it's an eagle, a juvenile probably about Three years old, I'd say, by the coloration. Doesn't have the white head yet. And we're looking at it, and we both kind of check it out in the binoculars, and it's just sitting there in the water a little bit. So we're coming in slowly on the boat at no wake speed, and we're going, oh, we should check this out because... I don't know how many of you have ever seen a bald eagle actually swimming, but compared to it flying, it is some of the goofiest stuff you have ever seen. It's effectively like a really bad version of the breaststroke, more or less. They don't look graceful doing it, but they do it anyway, because if they have a particularly big fish, they don't want to let that go. So, we want to approach this eagle because we figure it's probably got a good big fish, and we want to take a look. So we start pulling up alongside the eagle, and we look down, and it's sitting there in the water, not moving. And its beak is wide open, like it's shocked, or it's stunned, or something like that. And then we notice that its wing is folded back awkwardly right over its body. And that's kind of the point that we realize something's wrong with this little chick here. Well, not necessarily a chick, a full-fledged eagle juvenile. but. The whole crew kind of realizes this at the same time. And so I'm talking with my captain saying, what do we do? And then our deckhand walks out on the front of the boat in her personal flotation device and with the boat hook. And so we execute essentially probably the first and only actual man overboard rescue in the company's entire history. And it's for a juvenile bald eagle. Save the eagles. (laughs) Exactly. So the deckhand takes the eagle gently with the boat hook, kind of works it back towards the back of the boat, and then my girlfriend Debbie, who I also work with on the St. Eugene, which was the name of the vessel at the time, had the brilliant idea to grab our hypothermia blankets, toss it over the eagle, and pull it up out of the water onto the swim step. So at this point I'm kind of feeling a mixture of excitement and also confusion and panic. Because on the one hand, we have a bald eagle on board. We've just saved a juvenile bald eagle. This isn't something that happens every day. But at the other hand, what do you do with that now that we have it on of our swim step? We're heading back into the work dock. Alan Marine's gig is showing you the wildlife, not taking care of the wildlife. So who do you call when you have an injured bald eagle? It's almost like you wish we had some sort of facility here that took care of bald eagles when they were in trouble. So I'm embarrassed to admit it took me a little bit of time to realize that I should call the Raptor Center. But I googled their reception number and I called it up and I said, hey, my name is Michael Boos. I work for Allen Marine Tours. I have an injured bald eagle on my boat. What do we do? And so they said, oh yeah, we'll send a rescue team out right away and they'll take care of it. And we're like, great, awesome, fantastic. So we get into our dock and we have this eagle and we realize we probably should get it up off the dock and up to the parking lot so they can pick it up real easy. So I was nominated as the one to pick up this bald eagle and you pick it up and it's heavier than you expect. We always talk about how they're big birds but it feels like a toddler in your hands. So I'm carrying this bald eagle that's totally wrapped in blankets up the dock, and it's kind of shivering but not making any noise, and I'm sitting there going, shh, it's okay, it's okay. Like I'm shushing a toddler that had a nightmare, but the toddler is a bird with knives for feet, so I think the shushing was more for me rather than anybody else. So we get it up at the end of the dock, and we're waiting, and then this minivan pulls in, and we're like, great, the rescue team's here. And then they start unloading camera gear. And one guy walks over to us and says, Hi, we're a camera crew from National Geographic. We're doing a special on the Raptor Center. Can we film you? So I just graduated from acting school in June. And so immediately my film instincts kick in. I knock my hat backwards so they can see my face. I'm trying not to spike the camera too hard, make it all look natural. They start filming, asking us about what happened, the rescue, I'm explaining the story. And they go, that's great. Now, can you tell it to her like you've, she wasn't involved in the rescue? I look to the person they're pointing at and it's my girlfriend, who literally pulled the eagle out of the water. (laughs) So, with all of the patience in the world, she looks wildly interested (laughs) as I recount the story of this eagle rescue from the perspective that she wasn't on board pulling it out of the water. So they film for a while longer, and they're there for another 15, 20 minutes or so. And we actually have to call the Raptor Center and make sure they're sending the rescue crew because at this point, the film crew is the only people we're seeing showing up. And they say, yeah, they're just being a little bit slow, don't worry. And within about five minutes, two people show up in a totally normal-looking car. They say, are you the ones who called about the eagle? We say, yeah, it's right here. They take a quick look at it, pick it up, say, we'll bring your blankets back, walk it into a car, and then it's gone. (laughs) Film crew packs up, and then they leave. We signed some waivers, and it's done. So, just graduated from acting school, check me out, wherever you watch Natural Geographic, coming 2020. (laughs) All righty, so I have the great pleasure to introduce our next storyteller, Kaya. Kaya Elstad is a boy mom, a local artist, and adventurer extraordinaire. And the title of her story is "Beer Run." And I'm very excited because if you've ever gone on a beer run, you know it never goes the right way. I'm sure. <laughs>
6: okay. Um, so real quick, I just wanted to ask how many people here go subsistence fishing? Anybody in here dip net? So we do have a few people that that do the dip netting thing. And okay so do you guys ever go beyond like just readout or anywhere close as (laughs) my family um so my husband comes to me and he says hey we're gonna go out to whale bay we're gonna go out to port banks we're gonna go dip netting for salmon and i'm like yeah let's go do this and i'm all excited so we get all our stuff together we get on the boat i am not realizing that it is not just a two-hour drive away You know, working, busy, mom stuff. I don't look at charts. I don't know where we're going. So yay, whale pay. two days of spending time with my amazing family on a 38-foot boat. I realize that a 38-foot boat is very, very, very small. One of my favorite things to do when we go dip netting is as soon as we get to where we're going and we drop anchor, I like to get in a kayak or we've got a little eight foot walker base skiff. And the first thing I like to do is get in that with a sport pole and get the hell off the boat. Boat before my face explodes, and I become an entirely different human being that my family loves and adores. So we get there. I jump into this little eight-foot Walker Bay. I got a kayak paddle. I got a sport pole, and I am ready to get away from everybody on the boat. So I get out there. Um, when the sockeye start to run at the end of the sockeye run, the coho like to come in, and they like to pick up all the egg pieces, particles, everything that flows downriver, and eat it. So my Favorite thing to do with my sport pole is to hook into these little coes and let them pull me through the white water. It's kind of like surfing with a motor that has scales. So I'm in this little skiff, this little eight-foot dinghy, and I I row, I row in there to go do this thing. And I come around the corner and it is like, it is a beautiful day. The the clouds are parted, the sky is blue, they are shards of light just piercing the top of the water? It's like you, you come around the corner of Whale Bay into Port Banks and looks like the front of a Hallmark card. And I'm so excited. I have left my gun on the boat. I normally have a 44. This will come in handy later on in the story, I promise you. So I get out there. I was so anxious just to get to off, off the boat after two days and not two hours that I just left everything behind. I didn't grab a net. I didn't grab a gaff hook. I didn't have anything. I had my sport pole. I had my paddle. I had my boat. I had my little Leatherman plier pocket tool, and I was ready to go. And I get out there, and I'm all excited. Oh, crap, we're halfway done. I better hurry up. Okay, so (laughs) I get out there, and the first thing I see is a big snag. And I'm like, all right. So I tie off, quick release knot, and I leave a lot of rope behind me. And I cast out, pull, pull, fishing, get myself a nice 32-inch crumb hole. I am super stoked. So we get this big fish on the boat without a net, without a gaff hook. I see my kids and my husband trailing behind in their little boat. Oh, God, they're driving me crazy. See already. They're not even here yet. I get the fish on the boat. They pull up. My husband's like, hey, I have a couple beers that our buddy left on the boat. I'll trade you. I'll give you a couple beers and you can have the net and the gaff hook. I'm like, yeah. So they hand me these things and they take off in their little boat. I've got a whole bunch of line trailing out. In order to get these items onto my little skiff, I had to run my line under the snag and over the other side, kind of tie off because tide was going out and the current was pushing me toward the beach. Reach out to his boat, pull into mine, take the two Pops blue ribbons and stick them under my seat. They weren't even cold. And grab the net, grab the thing, throw the fish at them. They take off and then there's a current, right? Current trying to push me toward the beach. I'm clinging to this slimy log. And all of a sudden, I realize the rope, after pulling on this fish and going under this other snag and tying myself off again to pull him close to me, I've got the ropes all wrapped up around my legs. They're totally hooked onto this side of the log and that side of the log. I'm looking at the whole show like, oh, God, I got work to do. I start undoing it, and I hear a blood-curdling scream out of the other boat. BEAR! I look up on the beach, and from me to this beautiful woman in the purple is a humongous bear. He is probably about nine footy, at a face the size of a pizza box, jaws hanging down sideways. I'm not kidding, man. This was not cool. I look at him, I turn my boat sideways, and I do everything that we have been told to do, and I stand up, and I said, no. (laughs) NO! And instead of turning around and walking away like the readout bears do that are so used to seeing us, this guy drops his hair down, pulls his ears back, and decides he's going to beeline it down the beach right toward me. Oh, God, my ER instincts kick in, and I start pulling at everything that I possibly can. I am terrified. Meanwhile, my kids are screaming and crying in the other boat, and I occasionally poke my head up on the other side of the log. It's okay. Mommy's fine. I see the bear. Oh. I'm doing everything in my power to get free as quickly as I possibly can. So I turn around, you know, they're, they're doing their thing. I keep looking for the rifle. My husband's with the troller. He's, he's like got his little, like two, two porous troller motor over there. And it's hung up on the rocks. Tides going out. Current's trying to push me toward the bear. There's nothing I can do. And, Kids are still screaming. Thank God there's a little rubber wrap that's going to see. I turn around, and the bear is still making his way down the beach. Now he's about five feet behind me. I reach down between my legs, and all I have is a warm paps that's been unopened. And I thought at that moment that I could crack it open and check it, but it might be a better weapon if I just hurl it at the bear's face. <laughs> So I take this can of beer, full can of beer, and I turned around. And if you are offended by foul language, I am going to apologize right now because this is real (laughs) In this moment, I was either going to my pants, die, or cuss at this giant thing that wanted to tear me to pieces. I reached between my legs and grabbed one of those beers. And I was like, you, you're not going to eat me. As I'm screaming this, I throw the beer at the bear. It hits him square between the eyes and just the very tip of it kind of pops open. It starts spinning around in circles in the water and you could hear him diving at it. He was so interested in the beer, thank God, because I was sitting in a blood-filled boat. Oh, God. So I'm clawing at this point in time. Brand new $120 net over the side. I don't even care. I'm clawing my way up this slimy snag log to get to the very end. And as I get to the end and my fingers wrap around the end of it, I pull myself over and I turn around just in time to see his big hairy chest in the air. I jerked myself around the end of this log and this bear came down right at the back of my boat. He was no more than six inches off of the end of this little plastic dinghy. The wake from his body pushed my boat out and around this snag, right? And I'm like, oh, I start going backwards downstream. And I'm like, yeah, fuck it. (laughs) And then I hear the scraping on the bottom of the boat. And I realized, you know, tide's still going out. I am hung up on the rocks. So my gigantic pear-shaped girly self gets up. And I've got the kayak paddles. And I'm trying to push myself off the rocks, right? My kids are still screaming. I'm like, I'm okay. (laughs) I get myself off of the rocks trying like hell to remember the safe word because I'm terrified <laughs> and this guy is coming he's coming down so yes I get myself off the rocks and the current pushes me into the other boat and my husband says to me do you want me to tow you back to the big boat no and I got my paddle and I'm just and we watch this big giant pair Cross the river. He's all scrawny to his jaw was broken. Something had happened to him. I was easy pickings is what it ended up being. We get back to, I paddled my ass all the way back. He had his two horse trolling motor and I made it back to the boat before he did. That's how freaked out I was. We get in there. I jump out of the little skiff, and I get into the boat, and I am combing. I'm like, I oh, know we got whiskey in here somewhere. We're like trying to find it. Ah, I am, like, so freaked out. So I get in there, and I'm combing around, and I, I find myself a little shot of whiskey, and I'm trying to pour it. And I'm like, where was the rifle? I kept looking up, and I kept looking for the 275. You told me to leave my 44 because you said you had the rifle. And he goes, I left it on the big boat. <laughs> Kids, get back in the skiff. Both boys are smart. They see the look on my face and they jump back in the boat and I close the door of the boat. I'm like, the last thing my children would have saw was me being ripped apart. What were you thinking? And he goes, the last thing that they would have remembered is me leaving you on the beach to get ripped apart. So in that moment, I realized that there is absolutely no right answer. (laughs) There is no right answer. And you have to trust your partner. (laughs) Like, no matter how close you are or how wonderful they are, being on a very tiny boat for a very large amount of time is going to make that boat really, really, really small. And being in an emergent situation like that you have to be able to trust that they are going to make the right decisions also, even if they're not the decisions that you would have made. So now you understand what an Alaskan beer run is all about. (laughs) Thank you. so awesome to be a big person and try to squeeze through small places in Sitka and convince everybody that we're just meant to cuddle. <laughs> I don't know you, but you're going to feel parts of me that people that know me very well have never felt. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Jim Steffen, better known to his friends as Steph. He came to Sitka in the fall of 1978 on his sailboat, the Clips. Am I saying that correctly? Steph, where are you? Right is that the Clips? All right. So, he worked with uh, Marika Partridge and other committed individuals to found Raven Radio. You found it Raven Radio. Hey. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> We're going to give it up for this guy. <laughs> he set up a boat repair business and worked as a shipwright for 25 years. He transitioned to inspecting vessels as a marine surveyor, his current occupation. So you're a marine surveyor now. Oh, that's fantastic. And now we know who to call. <laughs> Is everybody like remembering his name, I hope? <laughs> Steph has been happily married to Judy Kern Stephan for 23 years. Congratulations. And enjoys his stepdaughter, Margie Kearns, and his two grandchildren, Juniper and Ivan. Parked on a Reef is a story about an incident in Berners Bay that resulted in several people getting wet feet due to unusual chain events.
4: Thanks. Everybody's been doing so well tonight. I'm not going to be able to come up to the standard of humor, maybe, but I'll do my best. I'll do my best, yeah. So this story actually kind of starts back in 1971 in Moclips, Washington, a little coastal town on the Olympic Peninsula, Mm -hmm. where I joined some college mates and we built this sailboat, the Moclips, and uh, made our maiden voyage... Uh, to Alaska on that boat in 77. And uh, let's see, so I spent some time in Juneau. We had a a boatload of about three or four people this particular fall. I think it was the fall of 77. Um, Made our way into Burners Bay on a, just, we had the boat totally provisioned up for a, a summer of cruising and we're we're circling around in this anchorage on the north side of the bay, and I can't remember that cove name right now. Does anybody know that cove? It's got a great big reef in the cove. <laughs> and it's on the chart. And uh, so I'm, uh, I'm fixing to drop the anchor, and I've got the depth under on and I'm just kind of doing some circles, just trying to find, like, where my swinging room might be. And I slide right up on top of this reef. And it was a bizarre feeling because the boat was chugging along at about a knot, and all of a sudden it just stopped. And uh, so obviously I'm on the rock. There's no question about what happened. Feeling really stupid. It's right around high tide. And so try backing off, and of course it's not happening. So, um, so we, uh, we organize ourselves. We take the anchor off the bow, put it in the dinghy, row off to one side and throw it in and try to kedge the boat off but really the tide's falling way too fast and so we're we're stuck on the rock Um, so uh, you know we go through the thought process what do you do now you know how far is the boat going to lay over is it going to fall off the rock what's it going to do so we just basically started taking our gear off the boat in the dinghy and rowing at the shore and we had tubs and tubs of like um you know uh, flour and sugar and rice and all this stuff in the bilges of the boat which was our our provisions we decided let's lighten the boat so if it does lay way over our odds of of refloating are are better so um you probably would have thought we looked pretty funny rowing back and forth to the beach with just all of our stuff you know and the boat, meanwhile, just basically laid clear over on her side, almost at a 90-degree angle. And we can see the rock. I mean, we're actually pretty well situated. It's kind of a flattish rock, and uh, there are no holes poked in the boat yet. And uh, the tide goes way out. We can walk around it. You know, uh, walk on the <laughs> boat. You know. <laughs> So anyway, we're feeling like okay, we can manage this. We can handle it. And so we're just hanging out waiting for the tide to come back in. Meanwhile, it gets dark and uh, so we we hang a lantern in the rigging and we're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And at one point, it's pitch dark by now and we see a pair of running lights coming up the bay from a long ways away. And we're going, "Oh, okay, whatever." And they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they're getting closer, and they're getting closer, and they just seem to be kind of headed right at us. So I get on the bow with a flare, and I just say, well, I want to make sure they see us. And they just keep coming full tilt, and son of a gun, if they don't get within, like, 50 feet or, no, maybe 75 feet of us before they, they get off the throttle, and they push this huge wake, right? The boat is just starting to float off the rock. So what it does, as you can imagine, it starts pounding. You know, the wake makes us pound on the rock. And so now we've gone from a fairly controlled situation to, like, total chaos. And uh, so basically we start taking on water. Turns out the boat is a couple of Coast Guard guys. (laughs) They're a couple of young guys from Auk Bay, and they're in the, on the 41-footer that's their patrol boat. As some of you are familiar with that boat. They have them all over. And it's a Chinese fire drill, and I'm calling for a pump. And they come, they come alongside. You know, there's plenty of water on the boat now. We're still on the rock because we're taking on water. And they can't get the pump running, so we take control. And we, they, they didn't know to choke the pump, you know, to get it started. So... We get the pump going, we get the flooding under control, and we wind up tight alongside the 41-footer. And uh, the long and short of it is they tow us all the way back to, uh, to Juneau on the 41, all the way actually around Douglas Island so that we can get to a boatyard in town and get hauled out. And uh, well, these guys are pretty embarrassed right now, and it turns out they weren't qualified to even run the 41. There were a couple of desk jockeys. Some pilot had flown over, seen us parked on the rock, notified the Coast Guard. We didn't mayday, but the Coast Guard thought, well, we better go out and help these guys, right?
7: Yeah.
4: <laughs> so I actually filed a complaint. and uh, <laughs> And as you can imagine, I didn't have much hope of that going anywhere. But they actually wound up paying for my damage. Oh, wow. So that's the—I guess that's the happy ending of the story. Even though <laughs> we spent uh, a month on the hard, you know, repairing the damage and uh, getting ready to go back, and resume our cruise. So, uh, so that's where the wet feet in my story comes from. <laughs> Thanks.
7: <laughs> All right.
4: So I'm going to introduce someone who I've known for many years. Deb Corso has been a friend of mine for probably the 40 years I've been here, darn near. She's been living around Alaska since the early 1980s, and she's worked in commercial fishing, mining, timber, construction, boat painting, and bartending, before going into higher education and then pursuing a career as a freelance writer. She's dabbled in marriage, art, and a radio show. (laughs) All with very limited success, she (laughs) says, but she she proclaims confidently that despite the shenanigans she raised up a mighty fine daughter. Now she'll regale you with tales from the honey bucket, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. (laughs)
8: Ellen gives amazing directions, but I don't follow them. I'm contrary, and so I'm going to apologize right now and tell you that I'm going to read this because I'm a writer, but it's going to be worth it, because if I don't read it, it's going to be from the hip. (laughs) These are tales from the honey bucket. Everybody makes plops, am I right? And for the majority of us living in... Wealthy, developed communities such as Sitka, indoor plumbing is seen as a basic human right that should be accessible to everybody, regardless of where they are when nature calls. But it isn't like that everywhere in time and space. And so many years ago, Sitka's harbors were populated with lots of little wooden boats that we used to refer to as the Mosquito Fleet, and that was mainly because of how they looked when the poles were down up against the horizon. These vessels were built to catch fish and hold them on ice until they would deliver to the plants or the scows. Free space on board was at a premium and so many boat owners would utilize every nook and cranny for everything but a privy. Meaning that even if a small closet was designated as the head, rarely was it plumbed for the occasion. It also meant Squatting between survival suits, sash weights, busted gear, old electronics, and those very expensive paper towels that were only for special occasions. <laughs> Leaving a person with the choice between old weather fax paper or tearing pages out of a box of Louis L'Amour novels to wipe their nethers with. <laughs> Furthermore, doors. Doors are not always useful on a small boat. So awkward bathroom moments were part and parcel with the experience. I actually had one skipper who relished in having a captive audience during gear soaks while he practiced bugling an elk from his special throne room. No judgment either, because it actually helped me call in my first cow. Now, logistically, it seems much easier and socially acceptable for males to just have a wee off the side of the boat, but for women, not so much. In the screaming seas when I was out west, I have seen men stand in the corner on deck to relieve themselves while I suffered in agony simply because I I needed to, but I wouldn't dare drop trow and squat down beside them, not my rain gear that is not to say that i've never hung it off the side to pump my own little bilge but it takes zen master concentration to mentally separate my brain from my bladder unless alcohol's involved and then anything goes (laughs) either way the few women that i ever really heard of or knew of were truly at ease conducting their business in full view of the fleet were truly, if you've been to Kodiak, you might have heard of them, an all female sane crew in the 80s, notoriously known as the Squat Squad. For the rest of us, (laughs) for the rest of us mere mortal babes, however, dealing with common bodily functions in a tight living space required a certain suspension of propriety. Let's not forget either that there are additional challenges that girls get to contend with on a monthly basis. And aside from the bloating and the bitching, there's also a lack of privacy and practicality that make bucket blasting even less attractive than it already
7: is.
8: (laughs) I had worked in a variety of fisheries over the years and eventually came to realize that a lot of boats with all-male crews often plastered some sort of bunny or honey or pet centerfold on the wall in the head providing me with a unique sense of commode camaraderie (laughs) that you rarely get with real women in a work environment. So, that was nice. (laughs) True. (laughs) Over time, I also discovered that bigger boats were frequently equipped with all sorts of toilets, Ranging from the maritime garden variety with a couple of valves that you gotta open and you gotta close and shut. And and then there's these dubious self composting toilets. (laughs) All the way to the MacGyver's. Those require vice grips, wrenches, a ball peen hammer, and a bachelor's degree in physics just to get the kids out of the pool. Nothing, however, prepared me for the geyser-inducing kraken that was haunting the bowels of a scallop dredger that I worked on one season out of Kodiak. I was serving as an observer on board with a crew of 12 men and me, who giggled like a freaking pack of schoolgirls. When I came staggering out of the loo that very first time, my eyes were wild, my hair was standing up, all a-tangle, and apparently the provider was the name of the boat, and it was infamous for its wicked up-flush. <laughs> a phenomenon that helped me understand why I secretly suspected that Miss November's come-hither look was actually the smirk of someone who was in on a joke with me at the brunt. <laughs> As if that all wasn't enough, the Premier Honey Bucket Challenge ratcheted up a couple notches after I had a kid. We lived on a tiny wooden boat at what would be Old Thompson Harbor now, and I potty trained her on a five-gallon bucket. And I made a little styrofoam head, you know, a little styrofoam seat to prevent her from falling in the bucket. Everything was fine. This is back when, before tourism and you know, was the industry that it is now. And in those days, public restrooms were few and far between. Before Elias and Harbor was added on, a new restroom was erected up at the top of the dock, and for folks living there, Ellen's husband was one of them, it was the epitome of of luxury. My kid was little and she would like gallop up the ramp, she was so excited, you know, they had like the flushers and the washers and the, the hot air thing, and she was so excited. And then the unimaginable happened, some of you maybe remember this, but a woman, a young woman, um, had a newborn infant, left it at the top in that new bathroom pretty soon after it was opened, and pretty much the doors were locked forever after, in the evenings, not forever, but in the evenings, and so my daughter and I, we calibrated our life, we eventually moved away from the harbor and onto other adventures that included cabin living, where we still didn't have a bathroom, and there were still... Big lines of honey buckets, and uh, we communed with nature, and basically, ultimately, made it into the 21st century with all the modern conveniences. Okay, she still talks to me, <laughs> right? Thanks. <laughs> I have a note here. Thank you. <laughs> Trust me, it's better if I read that than improv. <laughs> um, it would have been like 20 minutes longer. Okay. Ted Howard is back in the saddle. He's going to play a cool breeze. A thank you to his wife of 46 years. This one made me cry. Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: Well, my friend uh, Vern Kulp gave a a few of us uh, a prompt word, a stormy. He says, everybody write a song. Use the word stormy. And uh, a lot of people are about you know being on the, the seas in the middle of the, you know the perfect wave and that that sort of thing, but I, yeah. I got to thinking about uh, how unstormy my my wife's and my relationship was. So this is what came out. You heard a stormy Monday, stormy Tuesday, too. All the troubles in this life make us feel so blue. All through our lives, you've never been stormy with me. You're like a cool breeze over a calm, calm sea. The wind is whipping, raging through the town. The rain is coming sideways, brings some people down. All through our lives, you've never been stormy with me. You're just a cool breeze over a calm, calm sea. Some people like the push and the pull, the ups and downs. I want to thank you for that peaceful life we found. The storm is building, you can hear the ocean roar. Hear those stones a clacking as they shift along the shore. All through our lives, you've never been stormy with me. Your cool breeze. Just a cool, cool breeze. Just a cool, cool breeze. Over a calm, calm sea. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Ted. Wow. Another clap for everybody. Thanks, and have a great night.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sitka Tells Tales. Tonight's episode was the third edition of the recurring theme, Wet Feet. Stories on, in, and under the sea. Featuring music and stories from Ted Howard, Lakota Hardin, Michael Boos, Kai Alstead, Jim Steffen, and Deb Corso. This event was originally presented by Art Change, Inc. and the Sitka Seafood Festival on September 19, 2019 at Beak Restaurant. Thank you to our broadcast partners, Raven Radio, and thank you to Sitka Salmon Shares for supporting Art Change, Inc. and this production.